0: Hello, greetings, we're so glad that you've joined us and we're so glad that you're interested about spiritual things. My name is Ethan and I work with the Venice Church of Christ, we're Disciples Making Disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. Who are you? What are you about? It's not necessarily intended to be accusatory in, in our conversation, but it's thought questions. We were talking and I asked, who are you and what are you about? however you would attempt to answer those questions would involve at some level your story. If you are trying to explain to me who you are and what you're about you would emphasize certain elements or aspects of yourself and other aspects or elements of yourself would take on a less influential role. How you characterize yourself may be somewhat flexible based on the situation or your environment or the place you are in life. It would also say a lot about how you look at yourself and your place in the world I've introduced myself as Ethan I work as a minister with the Venice Church of Christ in Los Angeles California that that's part of my story I focused on that part I could focus on other elements of my story where I'm from my ancestry my hobbies my education my nationality something of that sort and all of those go into the story I tell in particular way I talk to you would be a way of telling the story in a certain way. It's important for us to recognize that we are meaningful creatures as human beings. We look for meaning. And so to us, we never have just random pieces of data that we line up in any which way. Uh, There's no such thing. Uh, We explain who we are, how we see others, with data, but in a way that makes for a meaningful narrative, which is a story. It's interesting, though, that even though story is so prevalent in how we just talk about ourselves and about who we are, there's a lot of people in the past, recent period, who have been trying to denigrate or deny the role of story in our lives. For the past 200 years, there's been a great attempt to understand what is true or what is real from what is mythological or what is superstitious. Uh, You could look at all kinds of examples of people who are trying to figure out the truth, the historical kernel in a In a quote-unquote mythological story, like the Trojan War, uh, for instance, uh, or mythological elements uh, uh, believed to exist in the Bible versus the true story of what happened uh, that was seen most often in higher textual criticism of the Bible text. It's interesting when you think about how people talk about stories, about mythologies or fables and things of that nature. Uh, They're seen as childish or primitive. And the idea is that we've gone beyond that. As modern human beings, we don't need story as much. We just need to furiously seek the truth, or so it is claimed. But can we really dismiss story and its power so quickly? And so it's good for us to spend some time talking about this idea of story. Are they just immature and superstitious relics from a past age, or do they still serve a valuable purpose? What are stories attempting to do, and what do we see in scripture regarding story? Thus, what is our story to be? When we think about these harsh and sharp judgments about stories, it comes from a perspective that suggests that somehow the only useful things in life are that which is real and that which is true. And, and to a very strong degree, I can sympathize with that. I'm the kind of person, personally, where I'd rather read non-fiction than fiction. I've always been that way. I feel if it's not based in reality, why bother? Uh, The fiction I tend to enjoy is fiction that uh, tells a a very large, wide story or mythology where it it has historical basis or relevance to a culture or something like that. Uh, But what's interesting about this idea is fiction and the exercise of the imagination are still compelling to this day, and that cannot be denied. I mean, think about it. Uh, What are the most popular books, television shows, and movies right now? In our conversation now, in 2016, uh, we see that recently, in the past decade or so, Harry Potter, and Twilight, The Hunger Games, Game of Thrones franchises, have proven extremely popular, very well-read books. Even in an age where people were decrying and saying the end, the end of the book age is near. Uh, the, many of these books, multi-volume, and many pages proved to be bestsellers. Converting those to movies and television shows has been extremely popular and profitable. Think about other movies. The Marvel Universe, Star Trek, the Star Wars franchises, uh, The Lord of the Rings, and The Hobbit that came out as well in the recent past have captured the imagination. Why are they so popular? Well, they've got compelling stories and characters, and yet they intentionally distort or depart from what we understand as reality. They come from a different time, a different place, or they introduce elements that we all know are not real, but are imaginary. And what's interesting, of course, is that all of these stories are not unique. There's so many that feature a hero's journey paradigm, like suggested by Joseph Campbell, that's something seen in ancient epics from Gilgamesh to, a, to the Odyssey, all the way down to in Star Wars, and and in, in, in modern fiction as well. Characters go out on long journeys, but they only really find themselves in the end. Characters who must realize that the most important things were always in front of them the entire time. And we can go on and on like this, but it's because storycraft is not new, and it's at its best and finest and most compelling when it follows these well-worn patterns in a fresh and new context. So even as modern man comes up with new stories, new narratives, and he finds new ways of retelling old themes. But how can it be? If, if, if honestly we're on this quest, as we've said, of looking at what's real and true, why is story so important? It's not who we are. Well, we like to say as human beings that we just want the facts. But we're very bad at retaining facts, and not only that, changing our thoughts and behavior patterns because of facts. But ancient wise men understood that you could communicate important lessons through story. Honestly, do we really think that any generation of mankind has taken fables and fairy tales seriously as facts? No. Even when Aesop was writing over 2,500 years ago. Do they take that as things that actually happened? No. But why do we still tell these Fables? Why do we still talk about Hansel and Gretel, Tortoise and the Hare, Little Red Riding Hood, and things like that? Why do we tell our children these stories? Why are we aware of them? Well, because we understand that moral lessons become deeply impressed in a child's mind. Long after they realize tortoises and hares don't race, they do understand the value of slow and steady and the danger of arrogance long after they understand Hansel and Gretel for who they are, they still understand the importance of being a little wary about gifts from strangers. So story has an important role in conveying truth. We'd like to think that we grow out of that, but we don't grow out of that. We just develop. And the stories perhaps get a little bit more imaginative and more compelling. Uh, Jesus of Nazareth himself, when he decided to teach important truths about the kingdom, didn't just give a bunch of abstractions. He didn't say, okay, you're going to go out there, you're going to tell people about the good news of my life, death, and resurrection. Some people are going to just reject it because Satan has already taken over their hearts. you got some people who are going to think it's great, who are going to convert, but they're going to uh, not be well-founded in the faith, and when the first persecution or difficulties arise, they're gone. Some people are going to accept it for what it is, but they're going to continue to hold on to all kinds of cares of the world and, and the, and the dangers of riches, and they're going to turn away, but there's going to be a lot of some people who are going to accept it for what it is, and they're going to to go, and they're going to bring in disciples, and they're going to manifest holiness, uh, some much more than others. That's all great exhortation. That would all be true. But it's not nearly as compelling as a sword goes out to sow. Some falls along the road. Some fell among the rock. Some fell among thorns, and some grew in good soil, and and some grew to 30-fold, 60-fold, some 100-fold. So much more compelling when it's done through the vehicle of story. And that is why he taught in parables, because those stories told far more than just the spiritual lessons to be conveyed. The very vehicle of the story was compelling, was memorable, and satisfied its purpose, as we can see in Matthew 13 and many other places. So, we, But we tell stories to, to teach lessons, and that's a very important part. Of it. But we also have stories to tell ourselves who we are. Because as long as we've been people, we've had stories told about ourselves. Again, we seek meaning. And so when we seek meaning, we're automatically going to be looking, and we have to find answers to the following questions. Who am I? From where have I come? Who are the people around me? How did we get to this point? Where are we going? Every culture has provided answers to those questions, particularly through myth. We can imagine the primitive man of everybody's imagination, and they're sitting around a campfire, and they're telling stories about the exploits of their ancestors and how they have come to be. Every nation has a founding myth or story explaining who they are, from where they've come, and what they're about. In Babylon, we found some of them. The Enuma Elish. Gilgamesh. In Greece, the Iliad and the Odyssey to this day are seen and and studied in in Greek schools as the founding stories of, of the Greek people. Rome had stories about Romulus and Remus, the exploits of the famous... Uh, noble men of old, Cincinnatus and others. The Arthur Saga in England. And even the United States. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And the founding fathers, George Washington, who never told a lie. And the Cherry tree incident and. And uh, we, we can even trace the patterns where the men who helped who found the country and, and even see the stories and the mythology that developed in the early 19th century to lionize and canonize those men as great men of, of, of exceptional virtue and integrity. And it's interesting that so many times these founding stories are disparaged as myth and make a lot of their distortions and inaccuracies. We use even that term myth. It, it automatically is a negative because it conjures up ideas of untrue stories. And it's true that most myths do have legendary elements, less than accurate elements, and if nothing else, they expand upon themes and ideas without a lot of corroborating evidence, or they selectively emphasize certain narrative elements over others. But even modern man is complicit as complicit with his ancestors in terms of myth-making. It may not involve the supernatural, but it's no less myth-making. However you look at the story of America, for instance, if you are an American like I am, you're going to emphasize certain elements of the American story over others. It's going to come from a specific viewpoint and will feature aspiration despite reality. If we talk about America as an exceptional nation, we want to talk about America and its, its philosophical ideas and its idea of freedom. Um, that, that is certainly its aspiration, but there are certainly a lot of parts of the story where we did not live up to those aspirations. But even if we spend all of our time focusing on all the ways that America has not lived up to its aspirations, uh, we ne- neglect and miss an important part of what gave the idea of America such great power in the minds of people they'd be willing to travel so far to come here to start a life or to, to, to deal with all kinds of hostilities. To this day, be willing to do that. The, any way you tell the story, you're going to be making it to some degree a myth. The view of others about America is going to be very different. You, look at, you talk to people from other countries and they, they think of America in very different terms. And that's true about any other country. About uh, China, or Russia, or India, or Sweden, or you name the country. There's, they have their own founding stories, and they have their own perspective about other countries. If you really think about it, in America here right now, in the 21st century, so much of the culture war that we have going on within ourselves, and even a lot of the conflict among nations, boil down to very different ways of telling stories. For instance, in America right now, is in the Middle East. And has a presence there. Is it an an attempt to safeguard American allies and to fight against the forces of terrorism, which is our ostensible purpose there, that we look at? But is it an imperialist encroachment by an infidel, an attempt to introduce secular Christian elements into pure Islamic culture, which is the way a lot of people in the Middle East look at it? I mean, 9-11. We look at 9-11 in the West as a terrorist attack by al-Qaeda to undermine our values. There are some people who uh, just cannot come to grips with that idea, and so they would rather think that it was an inside job by the Bush administration to justify war and poll numbers, which is a 9-11 truth review. And in a lot of places in the Middle East and in the and in the Muslim world, it is still believed that it was actually attacked by the Jews to attack, instigate conflict against Islam, uh, despite the fact that there's no evidence for that kind of idea. It's held very firmly. Um... We talked about America. Is it, is it an exceptional nation with superior cultural and philosophical ideals that's made the world a better place, or is it another imperialistic endeavor, plundering others to make itself bigger and just has a different pretense? These are all stories people tell themselves. Some of them have more elements of truth than others, are all held firmly as truth and they're used to justify certain ideas and practices. It's a lot easier to justify hatred against America if you think that 9-11 was not done by al-Qaeda. You can have a very different view of of a country based upon what you're focusing on. And really, none of us can get away from story-making because somehow, from some source, each and every one of us has foundational ideas of who we are and what we're about. In our culture in America today, we have this modern secularist consensus. It's a marriage of science and Epicurean philosophy, that all, you, all they are are random atoms together. Therefore, just do the best that you can. Don't hurt other people. And uh, there's no meaning in life. And that's the story that they want to tell us. That we're overdeveloped apes, the result of a long process of development, heading to further development if we don't kill ourselves off first. And there's nothing more to life than what we have here. And so, whatever meaning you can find is going to be found in how you live your life and how you treat others. Nation states. I like to tell the story that, that the nation state you're part of is superior to other nation states, that it's right, good, and noble to die for the sake of the defense or the participation, the aggression of your nation state against its foes and neighbors. And that's true, whatever country you live in. Genealogy has proven to be very important to people. Why? Why is it so interesting to chart back the past? Because it tells you who you are where your parents and grandparents, great-grandparents came from in any kind of detail. And if you can be associated with major events, it seems a lot more real to you because you your ancestors and you realize that you are who you are and where you are and have gone through what you've gone through only because certain specific things happened in the past. And if just a couple variables changed, everything will be different for you if you existed. And this is not some kind of mere hypothetical. Research is, is showing that children raised with a clear understanding of their origins and have a robust story of who they are as a family are better grounded and they exhibit more healthy psychological traits than those who don't. And think about it. Why do you do what you do? Why do you think what you think? Why do you feel what you feel? Your entire moral ethical outlook are dependent on your story upon your foundational values, which comes from the story of who you tell yourself, who you are, who your neighbor is, how you've gotten there, and where you're going. So story actually is of the greatest importance. You're wondering, where's the Bible in all of this? And in reality, story is all over the Bible. Because if any nation were truly defined by a story, it is Israel. One of the great stories Christians of Christian's history has been how Israel persevered. In 586 before Jesus, they lost every important mark of meaning in the ancient Eastern world. They lost their land, they lost their freedom, they lost the temple of their God. In the year 167 before Jesus, Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, did the same thing made it illegal to follow their religion, defiled uh, the temple, and attempted to impose Hellenism upon the Jews. The Romans did the same thing. And to this day, they have gone through significant challenges, difficult persecutions, and of course of all the Holocaust. For most of their history now, they have been without land, without the temple, without most of the hallmarks expected even within the law of Moses. How have they endured? They have endured because they have remembered who they are, and they have told the story. The story of Israel before the exile, as even seen in the New Testament is a story of how they accommodated their story and compromised it. They participated in the stories and the myths of the nations around them. They did not honor Yahweh as their God alone. They served the other gods, and it is only in the experience of the exile and afterwards that Israel identifies themselves so strongly and firmly in terms of the story of Yahweh, their one true creator God, and they stand defiant resistance against the stories and myths of the nations around them. Whereas all the other nations compromised their ideals and followed the stories of the greater nation among them, finally leading to the syncretism we see in the Greco-Roman world where the Greeks and Romans identified all the pagan deities in terms of their own gods, Israel remained defiant. And all those others have passed away, but Israel remains. This is not a coincidence because throughout the Old Testament, Yahweh makes sure to root Israel in its story what do you know about the book of Genesis? What is the Book of Genesis about? Tell the story of the creation, of the flood, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What it's really doing is an etiology, it's providing a story of how things have come to be. Who God is, the creator, how he created them, how God has chosen them through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why the Canaanites the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites are there, and why they have the different relations they have with each one of those tribes. And why certain places are named as they are, like why is Beersheba called Beersheba, among other places. In Exodus chapter 12, when God is about to strike Israel, Egypt with the death of the firstborn, he not only spends time talking about what the Israelites are to do on the Passover that night but he makes it abundantly clear that this will be a perpetual statute in the nation in Exodus 28 1 through 28 43 through 50 13 3 through 11 to the point where he says in verse 25 you shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Yahweh will give you, as he has promised, you will keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You all shall say, it is the sacrifice of Yahweh's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt, when he struck the Egyptians, but spared their houses. Why? It's explaining the meaning that this is the Independence Day of Israel. And they are to continue to to reenact it, to be a constant reminder of who they are and how they have gotten to where they are. They are in the land. They didn't get gifted with the land because of how amazing they are, or because they were a great nation, but because they were slaves in Egypt, and Yahweh remembered his covenant, and Yahweh delivered them with a strong hand. And that would influence and inform how they looked at themselves, and Yahweh, and what they were supposed to do. In Joshua twenty four, one through thirteen, when Joshua is addressing Israel for the last time, he grounds what he's telling them in how their ancestors served other gods beyond when they were on the other side of the river, God called Abraham and brought them to that day, and used this story of what God had done Israel to ground his exhortation of faithfulness. In 1 Samuel 12, 6-18, when Samuel chastises the people about wanting a king, he goes and points out how Yahweh was the king of the people and provided for his people rulers from Moses until his own day. In all the Psalms, if you go through this book of Psalms, notice how frequently the psalmist will speak of Yahweh's creator and be of Yahweh's chesed which is difficult to translate and translated, variously: steadfast love, steadfastness, loving kindness, covenant loyalty, etc. Uh, those hallmarks are constantly being exhorted that Yahweh is your creator, Yahweh has shown covenant faithfulness, and that grounds the Israelite understanding his relationship with his God. And there are specific Psalms 78, 105, 106, and 107, who, which are Psalms that tell the story of what God has done for Israel. And they tell the story differently. They tell the story of how God has acted powerfully to bring them into the land and has given them all they've given. How the people have rebelled, how the people have not been faithful to, to Yahweh. Um, and all pointing out different elements of that story to provide these specific lessons and to give that meaning. It, this The history, Joshua, Judges, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings are in the Bible because they're considered the former prophets, the historical prophets. That these are chroniclers directed by God to tell the story of Israel in terms of its relation to Yahweh. You think about all those stories in those books, and what they're telling more than anything else is what Yahweh has done through these people. It has told the story of the condition between Yahweh and the people. You would not tell that story the way it's told if you were doing an economic history of Israel. You would not tell that story the way it's told if you're talking about the political influence of Israel. In fact, the ones who would seem the greatest in the story would be considered the least based upon effectiveness in maintaining the integrity of Israel. And some of the men who are considered the worst would be considered the strongest in that regard. But there's a reason the story is being told the way it's being told. Because that story is not just about telling facts from the past. It's informing the people who they are how they've gotten to the place they are, and how they're supposed to live their lives. Seen very clearly in the Chronicles. First and second Chronicles probably comes from Ezra. And it begins with Adam. It's a genealogy from Adam to the exile, and after the exile. And he's trying to establish continuity between Israel before the exile and afterward, in terms of the kings, and specifically how the temple was established, and the rites in the temple. And that all the ministration temple are rooted in David. And this is not merely an Old Testament thing. In Luke 24, 44, when Jesus is in the resurrection, he, he explains to his disciples how he had fulfilled all the things that had been written of him in the Law, Psalms, and the Prophets. That Jesus is the embodiment and fulfillment of the story of Israel. That as Israel experienced exile. Return, sorry, to exile to Egypt, return, deliverance, uh, exile out of the land and return to the land. So Jesus went to Egypt, came back, was tempted in the wilderness, ministered, died, and was raised again. Fulfilling the story of Israel, embodying the story of Israel to meet the new chapter that God wants to have in that story. In Acts 7, when Stephen addresses the Sanhedrin, he does so by telling the story of Israel. It's not news to anybody in the Sanhedrin, but he's telling it to point out how they, the people had rejected the rulers that God had given them, and that the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. In chapter 13, Paul rehearses the story of Israel, talking about what God had done until the days of David, pointing out David's promise, and how those fulfilled in Jesus This is not surprising, and this was probably a very well-worn method of presentation, that when you wanted to tell the story, you wanted to provide an exhortation in Israel, you would root it in the story of what God had done through his people beforehand. In Acts chapter 3, Peter very carefully associates Jesus with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that God had worked through Abraham, the God of Abraham, Isaac, had worked through his servant Jesus, servant, going back to the idea of Isaiah. And he talks there about Jesus as fulfillment of all the prophets had spoken. He said, "You are the children of the prophets, and you are children of Abraham. You have God has blessed you by hearing this message first. They are inheriting the promise." Peter is very deliberately removing any distance that may exist in the minds of those hearing him between what had been promised and what was going on in his own day that it was, there was direct continuity. This was not a deviation from what God had planned or of God's story. It is the natural continuation of it. It's not a relic of Israel according to the flesh either. In Romans 4 and 9, Galatians 3, Paul goes to great lengths. This is about something that we take for granted today, that God's promises to Abraham were not mediated through the circumcision of the law, but instead were made on promise while Abraham was yet uncircumcised, to convey that through Jesus the pre- blessings of the promise of Abraham are poured out on all who share the faith of Abraham. That's why it's by faith. In 1 Corinthians chapter tw- 10, Paul does something very interesting and deliberate. He's speaking to the Corinthians, and he wants to warn them about their conduct. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized under Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the spiritual, same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. and The rock was Christ. He is speaking of Israel in Christian terms, baptism and of Christ. But he's also saying that our fathers, our ancestors, the Corinthians were mostly Greeks their physical ancestors were not Abraham and the people of Israel. But Paul's pointing out that spiritually they are. And they're supposed to learn from their lesson that they were idolaters, they, did, they were from the wilderness, they did things they should not have done, and they are examples for us that we might desire evil as they did. We're not to put God to the test that we're supposed to trust in Him. In Galatians six sixteen and Philippians 3, Paul says, we are the true." circumcision. We are the Israel of God. The, the uh, Israelite covenant language is now belongs to Christians. 1 Peter chapter 2 Peter appropriates the titles that God gave to Israel. Uh, a holy priesthood. A people for God's own possession. For Christians of Gentile and Jewish origin. Once you were not a people, now you are people. Once you had you God into mercy, only now you have mercy. Receive mercy is elect exiles in 1 Peter 1 and verse 1. And of course, then there's revelation. As a consummation of all the revelation God gives to us, he gives the revelation of Jesus to John, framing and speaking of the present reality and the things that the Christians would soon endure of past, in terms of past struggles of the people of God in the Old Testament. Christians are invited to see the scene in heaven in ways reminiscent of the ways that Isaiah and Ezekiel saw it. God's judgments on the nations of his of their time were spoken of in terms of the Exodus and the prophetic condemnations of Assyria and Babylon and Tyre. Rome is seen in terms of the beast of Daniel and of Babylon. And life after the judgment and resurrection are in terms of the glorious promises made in the prophets and in the life in the garden. At the end is as the beginning. In many ways, the proclamation of the gospel is the telling of the story of what God has done in the world, consummated through Jesus of Nazareth. And it's a story that doesn't just end 2,000 years ago, that God has an eternal purpose that he has purposed in Jesus to manifest in the church his, his great wisdom, Ephesians three ten and 11. That is as true today as it was then. When Jesus ends his Sermon on the Mount, He does so, comparing the man who builds his house on the rock and the man who builds his house on the sand. We're supposed to understand that those who do what Jesus says, after hearing them, is like the man who builds on the rock, and he will endure, but the one who listens but doesn't do what Jesus says is like the one who builds on the sand, and and when difficulties come, it will all be swept away. But he's talking about those things in terms of house foundations, rock or sand. So what Jesus is doing is inviting us to ask the question, what have we built our life upon? What is our foundation? Our foundations are the guiding beliefs and assumptions that govern our self-understanding and, and thus our ethical and moral compass. Our foundations is our story. As we have seen, in Jesus God invites us to participate in his story. The eternal plan is realized in Jesus and manifests in the church. So the question comes to us, is our story the story of God's eternal plan in Christ? We profess that story, do you know what it is? Do we use it to define ourselves in light of all the other competing narratives out there? What should our story be? According to the New Testament and the Old Testament, God is our creator, That he created all things through his word that we human beings are made in his image, male and female are made in the image of God, and that all was good, very good, but that Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. Their eyes were opened. They suffered separation from God. Sin, corruption, and death entered the world. Greater depravity led to the the point where man's heart was evil continually, and thus God Wiped out all but Noah, his family, and those animals on the flood. in the ark in the ark and the, the store of the flood. Then afterward, man would gather together the Tower of Babel and build a, uh, a monument to his own greatness. And his languages and tongues were, scat- were, were confused at Babel. At that point, in Genesis 11, man is separated from God himself with no nation and no hope. At that point, God begins a, a redemption by choosing Abraham promises Abraham, descendants, the land in which he's sojourning, and that through his seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. He has a son in his old age of promise, Isaac, who has a son Jacob, who has 12 sons, who will become the 12 tribes of Israel. They go to Egypt. God delivers them from bondage of the strong hand, and he made Israel his people, wanted them to be holy, to provide a blessing to the nations. But Israel rebelled. They were never truly faithful to God. They grumbled in the wilderness. They committed idolatry in the land. In the days of the judges, they appealed for a king and received Saul. David was a king after God's own heart, in whom God made many promises, seen and manifest in Solomon, who built the temple. But then, because of faithlessness, they divided into two kingdoms. The persistent idolatry and, and oppression. The prophets cried out for them to stop such things, but they persisted in it. And God judged them in exile. But a remnant proved faithful and returned to the land. Then, at the right time, came the Son incarnate as Jesus of Nazareth, fully God, fully man. The Messiah, the King, the Christ, the servant that God had promised Israel. He fulfilled all that was written of him, in the law and the Psalms and the prophets, and he embodied the story of Israel. He ministered and taught. He did good for people. But he was betrayed, was executed, suffering a cruel death on the cross. But he was raised again on the third day, and in his ascension was made Lord in Christ. That the apostles, the followers of Jesus, proclaimed to the Israel and the all nations the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Proclaim the good news first to the Jews, and then it goes to the Gentiles. They established local churches, and in those local churches they appointed elders and deacons. They provided the revelation we have in the scriptures, and they warned about false teachers to come. And unfortunately what they said came true, because soon after they had begun to fall away from the teachings the apostles led. left. First, by establishing different hierarchical authority structures, greater tra- confidence in tradition was developed, and decrees of religious authorities. As the Church gained greater acceptance and ultimately power in the world, those who sought to remain faithful to what God had revealed in Scripture were persecuted. There was constant dissent, though, from Roman Catholicism from more than just those who were faithful to God. The Reformation paved the way to provide an opportunity for men to consider what the New Testament had to say about the way things should be in the Church, the Kingdom. That led to the Restoration Movement in Scotland and America. But even then, many digressed on terms of missionary society and other issues, and there was division. Later on, even those among churches of Christ divided in terms of institutional issues and other digressions and had division. And to this day, we have a need to remain faithful to God, to live under the authority of Christ based on what he has revealed in the Word. And we live today in the hope to come that Jesus will return on the day of judgment. And there will be a day of resurrection and glory for eternity for those who have put their trust in the Lord Jesus and have sought to obey His will. Do you recognize that as your story? Are we willing to uphold that as our story? Can we resist the temptation to accommodate or compromise that story in favor of the myths that are perpetrated by spiritual forces of darkness over this present age in Ephesians 6 and verse 12? The story of... Can from anything from science... America, from entertainment, from cultural ethics, anything else. There's these these stories that try to come alongside and seem consistent. And sometimes some of those stories do not infringe upon what God has revealed. But in those places where it does, we need to stand firm for the story that God has told. And above all, we need to know that story. It does us no good if we raise our children to know the story of America, to know the story of Star Wars, or know the story of the Lord of the Rings, or a favorite sports team, but do not know the story of the people of God. Story is so important. It defines who we are. And it's a means by which we understand the world and our place in it. So we need to be rooted in the right story, to make the story of God and his people our story, that we can participate in and receive the blessings that come from it. And that is why we must affirm God's story, make it our own. If you have any questions or would like to discuss further the story, or maybe you recognize that the story isn't your story, you need to make it your story, or you just need prayer, just need to talk. If there's any way I can be of service, please let me know. Please contact me through my website at com. That's www.deverbovit.com. Or, if you'd like to learn more about the Ventures of Christ, check us out. You can find us online at VenturesofChrist.org. We're also on many forms of social media. We again, thank you. Have a great day.